This week's episode contains content that may be triggering for some listeners. There's mention of suicide. Nothing graphic, of course, but it plays an important part in today's story. It's okay if you need to skip this one. Do what's right for you. This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. To kick off our first season, I'll be having a conversation with No Stigmas founder, Jacob Moore. We'll hear about Jake's loss of his father and how it immensely reshaped his life. But we'll also see how Jake turned his pain into a mission to help others. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. term when it's like a cold open is that the uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's the cold open live from chicago exactly no stigmas (laughs) nice well um jake thank you so much for for being on this new no stigmas podcast and um i guess let's just start with a little bit more about you and no stigmas what have you what did you envision when you created No Stigmas and what is your mission with it? Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, Eli. You know, I I appreciate the the opportunity to kind of connect and um, hang out with you today. Um, and, and yeah, and share around this. I think um, it's it's great to see how far we've come from that original vision, um, which was just to connect people um, with like experiences, you know, I think I struggled so much when I was young, feeling like I was alone, like I was in this world, like I was different because of mental health challenges, losing my father to suicide. And, um, and I like, I I hid it for so long. I wore this mask and I just pretended that everything was okay. And, and that ended up costing me so much. And when I got to a point in my recovery, you know, that I had the strength to be able to start to give back to others, you know, I wanted to create that space where people could feel like they could just be themselves and not be judged. And the name No Stigmas came out of that desire, out of that effort, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. I think that um, probably one of the biggest, even the most dangerous things about mental health is that so many people feel that they are alone, that they can't get help. Um, and so any yeah. work to fight those stigmas is greatly beneficial to people in the mental health community, which is everybody. <laughs> yeah. And um, just really important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s and like people weren't talking about mental health the way that they are today. Um, when I was coming up in in high school, you know, it was just, there, there wasn't a conversation around this. People didn't know, you know, I, I watch old episodes of Friends, you know, which I watched like, you know, when they first came out, um, if that dates me at all. Um, <laughs> and And it was like, now I go back and I watch them and I was like, oh, some of that stuff did not age well. You know, some of the jokes about mental health and suicide and like gay jokes and like all this stuff. And I'm just like, yikes. Okay. Yikes. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so, but that was the the culture. Like if, if you talked about mental health, if you talked about suicide, if you, you know, wanted to talk about, you know, things like, you know, being sensitive as a man or being vulnerable, like you got made fun of. And not to say that that doesn't happen today. It does for sure. But, you know, back then it was just like the cultural norm. Like it was okay to make fun of people. It was okay to say things, you know, that were insensitive about mental health. And now we know better. Um, So generally people know, yo, that's not okay. Right. Or even if they don't, the majority of people, Think that it's not okay so they're they're not gonna it's not gonna go very well if they um exactly yeah do that you know and and when i first had the idea for no stigmas i mean it was, it was 2007 
you know, so that it was still a, a time when we weren't really having these conversations. It wasn't, you know, part of the cultural norm. We didn't have a lot of the, the campaigns and celebrity spokespeople and things that we do now. And so um, that was really like my motivation was like, man, if I felt alone and I felt like I couldn't share and I couldn't be myself and, and I have like so much privilege as, you know, a white straight dude, um, imagine like all these other people in the world who like, you know, they, they just have so much stacked against them. And then if you also have to deal with mental health stuff, if you also have to overcome, you know, depression and anxiety to just to be able to like survive and go to work, like that's not, that's not fair, you know? Right. Um, and we've evolved over the years and we've changed in, you know, what we do and, and kind of what our approach is, but you know, that central idea remains the same. Like we just want people to feel like they're not alone, like they can connect they have the support that they need and um, they're not going to be judged. And one of the, and one of the ways no stigmas really tries to do this is through um, peer to peer advocacy, right? Yeah, exactly. Conversations like this where we're telling our stories. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's the cool thing is like anyone can learn to be an advocate. Um, we all have experiences, whether or not you like have experienced, you know, mental illness or lost someone to suicide. Like we've all had experiences that we can bring to these conversations that we can use to be empathetic towards people. It's learning the language and learning the skill sets. And that's what our ally training is all about is giving people those tools to be able to be an ally and to be an advocate for mental health. That's awesome. Yeah. Backing up a little bit, you said you grew up in the eighties. Where are you, where are you from? Where was your, uh, kind of, where did you begin? Yeah. Uh, so I was actually, um, born in Phoenix, Arizona and, um, my, my childhood was like, was pretty interesting because we had this, um, this interesting dynamic in our family where my grandfather was, uh, is still pastor of a Bible church. Um, and he was basically doing like missionary work in, um, Arizona. He was going to like the native American reservations and, um, doing work there and, um, had a foster home that he and my grandma ran and, um, you know, so my mom was like, you know, a pastor's daughter and, um, and then like met my father, uh, who was someone who like grew up with like abusive alcoholic parents. Um, he was addicted to alcohol, um, and had, you know, a lot of run-ins with the law he was in and out of jail a lot and they fell in love and, so at 19 years old, um, got married, got pregnant with me and, um, had me when she was 20. So, wow. Yeah. And then it was like my, um, brother or my sister came a year and four days after me. And then my brother came, um, like a year and a half after that. So, holy cow. Yeah. So they got married and they're like, all right, we're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but like part of the, you know, challenge was like my mom, um, was like raising us a lot on her own because oh. of what was going on with my dad, you know, um, because he was just, you know, he would get arrested or, you know, be, be drunk or be in rehab or, you know, just, he was, he was a kind of guy who like, he had so much heart and so much love, um, so much charisma and, um, resourcefulness but he also had this like trauma and addiction and like things that he didn't have the skill sets to be able to overcome and and it, it affected all of us it affected our you know every bit of our lives um you know his addiction was so bad that 
you know, my mom had to buy beer before she could buy groceries. Um, it was, you know, it was rough, but, um, you know, then, uh, the whole family, um, up and decided to like move to Michigan, um, which is like where everybody's originally from. And, um, and I think that really just like disrupted a lot of things, um, for my mom in ways that were, were good because she, I think kind of, um, understood the dynamic that was happening with my father and, and understood that that needed change, needed to change. And so, um, you know, she took some action around like really setting some boundaries with the relationship, which, um, led to my father, um, you know, just, he, he just didn't have, like I said, the, the skill sets or support to be able to take care of himself. Um, and things went pretty, um, quickly downhill for him. Um, when I was six years old, he ended up dying by suicide. So it was, uh, you know, just devastating for, for all of us. That's, that's horrible. Yeah. How aware of you when you were little, um, sorry, let me rephrase that when you were little, how aware were you of kind of your family situation at the time? Was this something you were like actively seeing and noticing, or is this more like, you know, years from that moment, you can kind of figure out what was going on? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think when I was really little, I think just through osmosis, you know, I, I absorbed a lot of that energy. Um, you know, there was, I think just a great deal of anxiety and, um, you know, and, and just, I think maybe just a sense of like, um, unsettledness or like lack of safety, um, that, you know, any young person is just going to absorb that, you know? Um, but I think, so here's an, an interesting thing though. It doesn't happen a lot with young kids is like, we actually, uh, like I knew how he died, um, pretty soon after he died. So, um, I think that's like, there's a little bit of like a blessing and a curse with that. Um, knowing that it happened, um, the way that it, that it did, the, the fact that he took his own life, um, left me with a lot of questions, a lot of anger, um, feelings of abandonment. Um, but I also like, I didn't get told a false story. I didn't get told a lie. I didn't have to like find out years later and be like re-traumatized by that. It's like, of course, when I was a kid, it was like, you know, I thought of it as a decision and something that he did, you know, to us. Um, and I thought it was like weakness or, you know, somehow, you know, him being like, a, a bad person or weak or something, you know, something like that. And, um, of course, as I've gotten older and understood, you know, come to understand what suicide is and how someone gets to that point, um, my views have, have changed and I've come to peace and, and come to terms with that. But I mean, there was a long time where I really resented him, you know, Right. It's, I mean, it sounds like it was kind of a, there's no good avenue, especially when you're that age, that young, and that's your father. Like there's no good mm -hmm. route to go down. Like if you're, if you're lied to, then obviously that, that comes back later. Yeah. But knowing think, that reality then is, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, it was devastating. And I, you know, I like, I think you're right. Like there is no way to go. How do you, how do you navigate that? You know? Um, you try to do the best you can with the situation and that's just, that's survival, right? That's, that's what you do. Um, it's all you can do in those situations. And, and hopefully we can, um, work towards giving people more of the skill sets to be able to navigate that and, you know, and even prevent suicide. Um, that's the ideal, but, um, it, it's, it's going to happen. What I've been focused on a lot lately is um, overall wellness and resiliency and helping people to 
develop resilience um, because that helps us to weather whatever happens, whatever comes our way, um, whether it's trauma or circumstances beyond our control. If we are able to maintain our like our homeostasis throughout those situations, then we're better able to recover more quickly, able to recover from those, you know, really damaging times. And that's not just like something extreme like suicide. That's like any loss or a loss of a life or a relationship or a job or, you know, a change in circumstances, things like COVID, you know, having those skill sets around resiliency, being able to have that elasticity with our, you know, our emotional state and our ability to recover is, is huge, you know? Um, and a lot of, like a lot of people are just aren't taught that They're not taught that as kids, you don't f learn in health class, like, Hey, how do I, you know, build up my, my emotional durability to, to be able yeah. to get through whatever life's going to throw at me, you know? Right. Yeah. That should be, uh, that should be in schools, but, um, yeah, we're working on that even. Oh, nice. <laughs> Even, um, as you mentioned before, resiliency doesn't even have to be just about, you know, these super duper terrible events, which obviously you need that for, but it's like resiliency is, a, is such a valuable thing just for everyday life, just getting mm -hmm. through the day to day. Um, I'm curious about how your role in your family may have changed after, um, your father's passing. Just knowing that you're, you know, you're the oldest brother, you got two younger siblings right behind you and you're now mm -hmm. a single mother. Did that change um, how you had to be in your family at all? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I've, um, you're just, you're, you're asking the hard hitting questions, Eli. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's good. You know, I think it's like, um, I often um, look at that and I've tried to figure out like, you know, what's the, the chicken or egg um, type situation here. Um, <clears throat> to answer your question, I, I was, I very much, I think, took on the role of like the, the little man of the house, um, the responsibility, um, certainly like the, anxiety, the worry that I, um, took on, uh, my, my mom would often say like, you're like always worried about like adult problems. You're always worried about things that like, aren't, aren't yours to deal with. And, um, and I think that was just like that, that coping mechanism, you know, at a young age to just try to fix or try to do, or try to control what I could. Um, so I'm very much assume that role. Um, the chicken or egg question is, um, you know, did that develop because of, you know, my personality and just like who I am and, you know, like, cause did that's, that, did that create your personality or, or did the situation create it? Right. Did it, did it happen out of necessity? Did it happen because there was a, a gap there? Um, because my mom needed it because, you know, it was just there, you know, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> because it's certainly like that role and that mentality has followed me all through my life. I mean, that is just like becoming the, you know, the leader or the, you know, creator or the doer um, is just like been a natural thing for me, you know? So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's intrinsically part of me or whatever but I, I think that having the um you know whatever created the need for me to do that um certainly cemented that you know and, and I, I i definitely stepped into that role which you know when my mom remarried um you know it was like I, I still had that hat and that perspective and that created a lot of conflict with my stepdad, um, you know, who is like 
now he's, I mean, he's my dad. Like he's been in my life since I was, you know, seven, almost eight years old. And so like, he's my dad, but there were like a lot of times when I was young, when I was a kid that, that created a lot of conflict because I wanted to be in charge or I was the one who had like strong will, strong personality. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't fly. <laughs> it didn't right. go well always. But to give yourself some credit, you know, not, not for selfish reasons, right? Like that's your family. They've been hurt. Like you're the protector, the oldest, the man yeah. of the house. Yeah. And, and I mean, yes, I think, um, I think that it wasn't, you know, there was no, like, there was no malice there. It wasn't like self-serving, but, you know, just like, I didn't know another way. I think there's like, I often feel like I didn't, like, I didn't get to be a kid. Like I didn't, you know, now I'm like, I kind of pride myself in being like pretty goofy and like doing dumb stuff and running around and making a fool of myself because, um, like I didn't do that when I was a kid, like I was very serious. And so now I'm like, oh no, I like I've, I've purposefully introduced play into my life to be able to like have that childlike, you know, perspective and mentality. Um, cause I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't have that when I was a kid. And that's a, that's such a valuable part of growing up mm -hmm. typically. So it makes sense that, you know, got to try to bring that in somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think imagination I, I had, um, although when I was, <laughs> when I was young, it was like, it got repurposed for, um, with, for a lot of like anxiety and, um, you know, just <laughs> paranoia. Um, cause like my brain invented all sorts of like messed up stuff that, um, like, oh yeah, I had a lot of imagination, but it wasn't like fun stuff. It wasn't like dreaming of clouds and, you know, what, is that an elephant <laughs> your or fantasy a dinosaur? Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I didn't get to daydream. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a bit of a double-edged sword there. It could be really great being imaginative and inventive. It's amazing. But, um, yeah, but you need a, you need a good outlet. I think, right. You know? So, so far we've, we've really talked about like, this is very young six six to mm -hmm. eight i think you said um i'm curious how this how this pressure and kind of this mounting anxiety starts morphing and changing as you you know you start to hit middle school high school mm. what did those times look like for you yeah um it looked like um a lot of a lot of acting out um i just always had a lot of energy couldn't sit still. I was not, um, great in school. There was, you know, just like gaps in memory. I feel like I time traveled through a lot of, you know, that period of my life. So I wasn't really like present in, in school, like emotionally, mentally present. Um, there's just like chunks of like, you know, basic arithmetic and grammar and spelling and things that I just, <laughs> I just didn't learn growing up because my brain was just checked out, you know, somewhere else. Um, so I wasn't being engaged that way. And so like, I just, I acted out and I got in trouble a lot. You know, I was the kid who was in the, sent out in the hallway and down to the principal's office and expelled. I was just, I was just always getting in trouble. Um, and, uh, it, it was interesting cause like going into middle school from middle school to high school, um, there was like this opportunity to, uh, reinvent myself, uh, because my stepdad adopted us. And so, um, we like changed our names. Um, and I, uh, I, I wore glasses from like fifth grade on. So going into high school, I got contacts and, you know, and I just kind of like, um, I started growing facial hair. I was just like, I was oh, just, you're like going all out. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I was just like maturing and you know, my body changed and like, you know, girls seemed to be interested in me and like, and it was just like, all this was happening at once. And so I was like, okay, I get to be someone else. And, um, and it was, it was interesting because, um, 
I just became a, like a keen observer of people and human behavior. And I looked at the kids who were popular or the ones who had, you know, wealthy parents and had nice homes and cars and that sort of thing. And I wanted to be, be like them. And I wanted to, you know, be friends with them. So I, I started like observing and emulating. And this is when I say, like, I really started to like put on this mask and pretend. And I, um, I really just sort of like curated this image, this persona of like Jake, you know, like before that, everybody called me Jacob and now I was Jake. And with that came this like vibe. And I, you know, I started like getting involved in sports and, um, theater and acting and, you know, and I just like learned all these different skill sets and that just evolved into like this persona. But the thing is, is like, because none of the base level stuff was addressed, none of the anxiety, none of the, you know, the, the trauma was actually addressed. Um, it just, that was still there. It was still like, like this engine inside of me, just like always going and always driving. Even if on the outside, I looked like everything was like calm and placid, you know? And um, eventually it just, it, it caught up to me. Um, I couldn't keep up the grades. I couldn't keep up the persona. I couldn't keep up like doing so much being like just producing everything in an attempt to try to like feel better to hide or to cover it up. Like it just, I just couldn't keep it up. And, you know, it, it really, um, it really caught up to me in my junior year of high school. Um, I, I think I remember a big turning point when I went to, um, there was like a, a career fair and everybody had to take these aptitude tests and you know they told you like what you would be good at you know and my oh, friends based on the yeah based on your skill results. sets based on your test results like you know who are you what should you do with your life um which i and, find or sorry not just to interject go ahead no, no, i find no. that a, a bit problematic already just like <laughs> the, based on how you do on these set of questions you'll be good at this or that yeah that sounds a little like a lot of pressure. It's giving me anxiety just hearing about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I had all these friends who were, you know, like successful and their parents had money and they were, you know, going to do great things with their lives. And I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the money. You know, we were, we were poor growing up. You know, we lived in a trailer park for a lot of my childhood. Um, and even when we, you know, got a house, it was still like on the poorer side of town, you know? Um, and so it was like, I don't have a lot of options, you know, like the best option for me was a trade school, you know, I, like I, I, I couldn't get scholarships to go to, to go to school. I didn't have the grades to get in, you know? So all my, all my friends are applying for college and looking at, what they're going to do with their lives. And I was like, I don't know. Like I, I have some things that are interesting to me, but I don't, I was directionless. And I think that plus, um, the long Michigan winters and, um, the, just the things being unaddressed for so long, just caught up to me. And, and I got really depressed. Um, I stopped caring, stopped taking care of myself, um, stopped going to school and I just kind of checked out. Um, and eventually I just stopped caring whether or not I lived or died. And, um, it was like this apathy just like took over me and I just, I was like, in so much like emotional pain that I 
um, like I just wanted it to end. And that was a really um, dark and scary time um, because it was the first time that I really understood what my father must have been going through and and really realized like, oh, he was in, like if he was in half as much pain as I was, then like, like of course he didn't want to live anymore. Like who who would want to, you know? So it was it was scary because that's not it's like I didn't I didn't like actively want to to die, but I just I did not want to live, you know. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. Other resources are linked in the show notes. And now, back to the conversation. And it's it's frightening to see, you know, someone so close to you, what ended up happening to them. And seeing that as like, you know, I, I feel a similar way, but I don't want that to be what happens to me. Well, and you know, when I was young, like I made a promise, um, that, that, that wouldn't be me, you know, cause I like when I was a kid, everybody told me like how much I look like my father, how much I act like him, how similar I was to him. And like, and I always, um, resented that because I was like, no, I don't like, I don't want to be like him. You know, that's never going to be me. I'm never going to do that to make that choice. And to be in a position where, um, you know, it, it was no longer something that was a choice. It was just, it was just like an inevitable conclusion. Um, but I'm, I'm really, really fortunate because my mom um, was was there, and she she recognized what was happening, mm-hmm. and she I mean she'd seen it before, right? Now she had the skill sets to be able to do something about, it, to be able to intervene, to be able to take positive action, and um, she literally like picked me up and took me to the doctor and um, helped me get the help that I needed. And if I, if she hadn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. Wow. That's amazing. How old are you when this happened about? Uh, 16. 16. Okay. So this all, this is going on all in your junior year of high school. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I ended up missing, um, so much school junior year and the beginning of senior year that, um, they weren't going to let me graduate from high school. So yeah, my, my mom had to like petition the school board to let me graduate. So I had to do extra, you know, extra work and, and, you know, it made it happen, but it was, um, you know, it was, I think like so many people look at that as like, like supposed to be like the happiest time of your life and young and carefree and, you know, all this like opportunity before you and, um, and it just, it wasn't like an actual part of like my experience, you know? And I think that's that, like, that was the toughest thing because like the disparity between what people saw and how I felt, right? What was going on inside versus like everybody looked at me as this guy who had everything together, you know, who had friends and who was well-liked and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and it was just like, it was like incongruent. There was this kind of distortion between the two and like trying to live up to this and feeling so different from that. Um, I was like, how do you reconcile that? Right. You have voices telling you, you know, 
here's your here's your job career test like this is what you should be doing you should have it figured out these should be the happiest years of your life like all these different voices that are completely in contrast to how what's what's actually going on internally yeah and i mean how does any 16 or 17 year old know that figure that out you know um and i mean not everybody has a kind of childhood that i did and experiences the kind of stuff that i did so it's like you know yeah everybody has different paths and journeys but like you can't you can't take this one size fits all approach and apply it to everybody it just it doesn't work you know no standardized testing um doesn't account for things like you know trauma and mental health issues right or you know demographic background um right there's like yeah there's a lot of problems with that well yeah and i mean again like look at you know the fact that like again like i'm a white straight dude who you know lived in a middle class town like even though we were poor growing up like still had a lot more than a lot of people if you you know change any one of those demographic you know factors with me and you change it to something else uh, just being female or being gay or being black or being you know any other number of things you change that and like then i've got it so much harder you know so it's it's like there are just so many people with with so much stacked against them if it was that hard for me like man like, imagine imagine how it know? must be for for somebody with those other factors up against them yeah yeah and you know and so i i think that's um that's where it was like it was a long steady march out of that um it was a lot of like taking meds and going to therapy and you know trying different um different tactics and um, enrolling in community college and dropping out and getting a job and losing it and starting a relationship and ending. And I mean, this was like, basically my, this is my twenties, you know, it was just that during that whole time, that's just, it was just trying to figure my stuff out. And, um, and it was like, during that time I saw, you know, a dozen different therapists, 33 different combinations of pharmaceuticals. I had a bunch of different diagnoses, like everything from seasonal affective disorder to, you know, panic disorder to, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. Like they just like threw the whole DSM four at me. Manual. At the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it was like, um, you know, no, it, it was, it was such a tumultuous time and I had so many, you know, roller coasters um of experiences and emotions during that time. It was um it was a lot to try to figure out. Um and you know again that like that cookie cutter approach doesn't did not work for me. Um and and so you know naturally I turned to um other like unhelpful tactics like smoking and drinking and drugs and sex and buying stuff and, you know, just doing dumb stuff that like did not help either, you know? So it's like this whole combination of, um, things like kind of just thrown into a pot and like we'll see mix what it all together and, and try to see what works, you know? Um, it was, uh, it was a challenging time, but at least, um, at least, then I had some direction. Like then I kind of, I started to understand like why I was going through what I was going through, you know, going to therapy and beginning that like very slow process of peeling back all the layers of the onion, you know, gave me insight to understand like, here's why this stuff is happening and here's where it's coming from. Um, so it was like a super angsty period of time but it was also, um, there were these like beautiful moments of clarity as well, where I could like just see, you know, the truth of something and understand what, why, you know? Those moments are so valuable 
uh, through a mental health journey because it's really like an anchor point, something to kind of hold on to of like, all right, I see who I can be. I see where I can go. Yeah. In the midst of it all, you got to hold on to those. Yeah. And I think um, one of those major sort of anchor points for me was uh, meeting someone who I, I came to think of as a mentor. Um, someone who shared their own personal experiences with me um, and provided what I, like I didn't know at the time. Now I know is peer support. And this gentleman, so we met on a plane. Um, I was going to Argentina and I, at the time had a lot of flight anxiety. And so my solution to that was um, taking a sedative and um, drinking a, a few gin and tonics. And that was how I tried to uh, get through long flights. And this guy, like he, so like we, we both lucked out. We were at the back of the plane and we both had a row to ourselves. And so we were just sitting oh, there. Nice. And, yeah. And it was like shortly after takeoff and, um, and he just looked over at me and he was just like, he's just like, I, like, I recognize you. I recognize myself in you, you know, what you're going through. And, and is he a stranger? At and this at this point, point like he's a stranger. And, you know, but I think I thought like I had my stuff together, but apparently, you know, it was clear, especially to someone who had been through, you know, or gone through similar things. Like, I think, um, you know, he saw it and he just like called me out on my BS, <laughs> you know? Um, but it was interesting because, you know, he shared like kind of unprompted um, that he had had some similar experiences um, that he had lost a parent to suicide been through depression and come out on the other side and hearing from someone firsthand who had like not only gotten through it and just and survived but was now in a place in their life where they were thriving where they had peace it was like this light bulb for me going off and and understanding like oh well if they can do it then i can do it too um i hadn't really ever met another another man who had had that you know and it was um I, it set me on a different path it's it helped me understand that like i had to take ownership of what i was experiencing i couldn't leave it up to the doctors i couldn't leave it up to you know the pharmaceuticals certainly couldn't leave it up to <laughs> drinking or anything else um that i had to like take ownership and take control of what i was experiencing and you know when i started to do that uh everything changed it was like night and day. Um, and I, I started doing what I call my human experiments. Um, only these ones, like I got to control and I, I decided like, what were the good things that I was going to give myself? How was I going to lift myself up and help myself? So, you know, I started, um, at the time I didn't even realize this, but I started like the building blocks for what the five bridges system is now. Uh, so bond is like how we connect to the people, places, and things that support us. And I started surrounding myself with, with more positive people, with mentors, with people who helped to lift me up. And I started looking at like, well, what am I putting in my body? How is it affecting me? How is it affecting my energy, my mood? Uh, now I, I know that as fuel, the second bridge, anything and everything from like the things we eat to the media we consume, like all have an impact on our system. 
And then I started looking at like, how does my exercise and physical fitness and my mobility play into this? That now I know is what we call move, our third bridge. And then what about my sleep habits and like the routines around, you know, my like resetting or retreat, like what does that look like? You know, so now that's the fourth bridge, rest. And then like, how am I giving back? How am I contributing to society? How am I using these things that I've learned and the the gifts that I've been given to help others? And that's the fifth bridge, that's give, our positive output. And, you know, that's the that's the one that led to no stigmas and the five bridges and to be able to provide peer support and be able to, you know, help other people find their own paths and customize their own wellness. Cause it's not something that you can do um, if you don't have a roadmap. Right. You know, in a way you're doing for others through no stigmas and five bridges with a stranger on the plane did for you. It kind of, kind of comes around. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. That's that whole, you know, pay it forward mentality, the the law of reciprocity, you know. Um when we give, you know, that was like I don't know if if he will ever understand the ripple effects of that kindness. The first thought that comes to mind is how like paradoxical it is in a way that you know, having that kind of loss um, from an early age for you, like kind of the ripple effect that had in your family, but how just as easily, or not not easily, but we can have hope because it can be, I don't know if reversed is the word, but you can be built back up the same way and, and it can have a ripple effect that helps other people in the mm -hmm. same way that the loss had a ripple effect that hurt other people. Yeah. Yeah, my my friend Kevin Hines, um, he produced a film called Suicide: The Ripple Effect, and and it talks a lot about um, you know the fact that like statistically, you know, each person who dies by suicide leaves behind six or more people who are irrevocably affected by that suicide, and um, you know their their lives are forever changed, and I think. Um, there's also a flip side to that coin because we can harness that, right? We can harness that pain, we can harness our anxiety. We can harness like any negative emotion that we experience. Anger is a great example. Every, every experience, every emotion has a flip side. It has an opposite and you know, equal energy that we can take from it. So it's like anger can cause me to yell and scream and throw things and put my fist through a wall, right? Um, all things I've done, by the way. Um, anger can also be something that motivates us to take action to right injustice, to do something in the world to stand up for people who are marginalized or to do something to right a wrong. You know, it's it, what do we do with that input? What do we do with that stimuli? And if we can use that, if we can turn anxious feelings into excitement, into energy to do something, to take positive action. Like, isn't that a better use of that instead of internalizing it and perseverating on it and turning it into something that's really, really negative, you know? Absolutely. So I, yeah. I think, I think the, a loss by suicide can, can be the same thing. Right. It's how you, what you choose to do with, with what has happened. Yeah. And it's not as simple as just like deciding you're not going to be anxious or deciding that you're not going to be depressed. Like I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but 
the the perspective, the attitude matters as well. It it has it plays a part in recovery and resilience. There has to be some level of taking over ownership of what's you know what's going on, how are you feeling, mm-hmm. and taking the steps to to get some help. Yeah. Yeah, I can't I can't control the things that have happened to me, but I can control what I do with them. I can control the action that I take. When you were young, you mentioned um or you mentioned that when you were young, being a kid in the 80s, there were all sorts of stigmas that made it difficult to try to to try to take this action to get to get help. Did any of those kind of stick with you as you grew up and were dealing with anxiety? For sure. Yeah. And, and some of them still do. I think there's, um, there's a lot of shame that comes with that feelings of being weak, um, of being not enough. Um, this sense that, you know, I was somehow like flawed or bad or wrong. You know, I, I like, I, I used to hear that a lot when I was a kid, like, you know, there's a bad kid. Um, and, like when it's happening at the same time, when you're having these thoughts in your head that are not rational and this anxiety, and then your behavior is unacceptable to people and they're reinforcing that by saying that you're not a good kid, then like all of that like affects your self-perception. All of that, you know, it writes these scripts in your in your brain that I don't think can ever be erased. As much work as I do as much as I've done like around personal development and mindfulness and trying to, you know, rewrite scripts and even just like somatic work to deal with like trauma that exists in my body and um, that's stored in muscles or, you know, soft tissue. And, um, you know, it's just like, it's, it's still there. There's an imprint there, you know? So like, yeah, absolutely. I catch myself being hard on myself all the time shaming myself, being negative, that comes from somewhere. It came from things that I heard, things that I absorbed from other people, you know? Right. Things that are completely counterintuitive and damaging to this, this journey of trying to get help and, um, you know, fight really. Mm -hmm. What did you mentioned this melting pot of like all these things that you tried um, kind of to cope with, with anxiety and obviously the conversation with, um, the person on the plane really, really helped transform you. But what, what ended up working for you? Like what has worked, what helps you with your anxiety? Like I said, you know, mindfulness has been a big part of that process. Um, so, uh, one of my favorite forms of therapy is ACT acceptance commitment therapy and it's a very mindful approach to um to thoughts and emotions um essentially essentially like all all mindfulness practices like meditation it's all about creating space between your thoughts and your actions right we all have these thoughts that whirl through our heads some of them are you know extreme and weird and you know, messed up, um, what we do between that thought or that feeling that comes up in our body and the action that we take, that's, that's the important part, right? So for me, looking a lot at like anger was, was a really, was a response that was just the most accessible for me, um, growing up. Like I kind of skipped over all of the all the other micro emotions that happen before anger and just go right to anger, right? Like like I said, when you peel back the layers of that onion, we start to see like, well, like what comes before anger? We have you know, we have like feeling abandoned and insecurity and you know um, feelings of like not enoughness and you know not belonging and you know, all these things that like lead up to the anger, right? Um, so 
like this process of kind of like putting that buffer between our thoughts and our actions um, has been really helpful for me. Um, the, the other thing that like I've come to understand for me is really important is like, is having a, a plan, having a plan that I've designed, you know, again, now I call that five bridges and I have this systematic approach to it. At the time I, I just, you know, I just started to like guess and check. That was like the only thing that I took from, from science class was like this, the scientific method of like experimenting and figuring out what works. And, you know, and, and I would do that and kind of understand like, oh, okay. When I, um, drink caffeine, for instance, um, my heart rate goes up. I feel, you know, extra jittery. I have more anxiety. Um, there's a direct correlation with that, you know? And so when, when I saw that, I was like, okay, cool. What else is there? Um, you know, and I noticed that like, Hey, if I'm not active in the winter, if I'm not getting outside, if I'm not doing things, then like my mood goes down and I start to feel worse. I start to feel more depressed. And so like, I have to move, I have to be active. I have to do things. That's the way that my body works, you know? So it was that kind of experimentation process, um, discovering what works. I really did that like over this decade to where I, I felt like I understood myself, you know, to, to a level that, um, I created routines and I created systems to where I just don't, I don't even have to think about it anymore. Now I just know here's what I do and here's what I don't do. Oh, I'm starting to feel this way. Oh, I need to do this. I need to take this action, you know, but it took a long time to get to know myself on that level. And I still go to therapy and, you know, now that like, now that I'm married, I, you know, we have a couple therapists and we do that work together because now I've learned there's a whole new language and there's a whole new process to, you know, that affects me and that affects us. And, you know, and I have to, I have to look at that, but I'm like, I'm, and I'm not by any means perfect. Um, but I'm sure glad that I did the work that I did on myself before getting married because, um, I at least have an understanding of like how my system works before I have to try to figure out someone else, you know? Right. Yeah. And you're probably able to bring that empathy of the stuff you're going through to kind of understand your partner better. I try. <laughs> That's what the couples therapy is for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How would you say you feel now just in the, in this present time? Like how are, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, um, I think asking me this now is great because, um, I think kind of coming out of quarantine and COVID, like, um, the last couple of years have been rough. I'll tell you, um, you know, my, my wife and I have known each other for a while, but we, um, we just got married, um, back in April and, you know, we've had on top of COVID and quarantine and moving, you know, buying a house and moving to a different state. Um, we've had two miscarriage losses, um, which were, um, just devastating and something that like, we don't talk about enough. Um, and I've come to understand that like so many people experience and I mean, so many of my friends and her friends like have, have lived through miscarriages and, and it's just like, why do we not talk about this? Um, there, I think there's a lot of stigmas around that. We could, we could have a whole nother another episode, another episode. <laughs> on that. Um, but, um, and, and what's come up for me during this time is a lot of anger, that default emotion for me, that, that, that always comes up. That's what I go back to is that, is that anger, um, which is pretty triggering for her. And so it's been a challenge navigating it all. Um, but we've been, we've been working hard and, um, I'm happy to share that, um, that Lindsay is, is pregnant and, um, we're at, uh, the six month mark. So it's, it's so, 
exciting and, and nerve wracking to be at this point. Um, Congratulations. Been, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's made me really double down on my commitment to investing in us in the relationship and my own self care so that I can be there for her and for the baby. So all that's to say, I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks. You. Doing good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm glad to hear that. How did, I mean, you've touched on this already with, with five bridges and no stigmas, I guess. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, how did, how did having these experiences, having anxiety and, and wrestling with depression help you become an advocate for mental health? It's funny because the answer is kind of you know, <laughs> no stigmas. It's right there. You can see it. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there is that, that sort of tangible thing. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, it has, I think, helped me be a lot more empathetic and a lot more understanding. Um, the more people I meet through no stigmas, more people I work with through five bridges to help them discover what works for them, the more I've come to understand that um, every path is unique, every person's you know, journey is different, and I may not be able to ever fully understand what you've gone through or someone else has gone through. I can certainly show compassion and empathy to someone. And, um, and I think that's you know, if I can ask anything of, of anybody listening um, today is just give people the benefit of the doubt, give people a break, you know, don't assume worst intent. Um, you do, you never know what they're going through. They can be so, so good at hiding it, but you just never know, you know, err on the side of love. More than anything. More than anything. Yeah. And kind of as we wrap up and start to close, do you have any final thoughts on on how we can help love others, how we can create a space for them? Yeah, I think um, it it's, you know, I, how do I want to say it? I think, you know, we don't truly ever know what it's like until we go through it or until we know someone who go who goes through it. Um, but if we can just suspend that disbelief and allow ourselves to just trust that someone is someone's being, you know, honest and true about the way that they're feeling, like no one would choose to be depressed. No one would choose to be anxious. No one would choose to go through and, and subject themselves to stigmas or to judgment from people. Who would? Who would if they had the choice to be positive and bright and cheery and never have any issues? Like, who would, who would not choose to do that, right? Right. So, like, can we give them the benefit of the doubt? Can we give them a little grace, a little, you know, a little understanding? I think that that to me is um, is like the is the greatest gift that we can give anyone is that non judgment, willing to just go in, suspend all whatever personal things you've got going on, and just listen. Yeah. Listening, I think, is is one of the most challenging skill sets, but one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone is just our time, right? That's the it's a non-renewable resource is our time. And when we choose to give that to someone else, um, it is it's it's incredible what that can provide to someone just the understanding that someone cares, someone um, 
wants to know, is willing to hear all the uncomfortable, dark, dirty bits. Like that's just, that's a huge gift. Yeah. Absolutely. Jake, thank you so much for, for coming on this, for having the courage to share your story and for not only, not only sharing your story, but taking tangible action to help thousands of other people. Um, peer to peer advocacy, like, like you've always known like this is, is so important to helping people recover and feel heard and just yeah. most of all feel like they're not alone. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to do this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and thank, thank you, Eli. I, I appreciate you, you know, taking your time and, um, providing a platform for people to share and for people to understand that they're not alone. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's crucial fighting, fighting the stigmas around mental health. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Eli Lawson, Lance Bordalone, John Panacucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Jacob Moore for sharing his story today and making this whole thing possible. To go beyond the show, connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. Consider leaving us a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts and sharing the show with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. You can expect a new episode of Unsilent every Wednesday from here on out. And remember, whatever you're going through, you don't have to do it alone. Be unsilent. We'll see you next week.